Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It will come as no surprise that in the late 19th century, people who had any kind of disability were treated differently. Those who had health conditions or impairments often faced social ostracisation, couldn't get jobs and often found themselves down and out without any prospects. And in a cutthroat Victorian oppressive society, this meant that life could be a very uncomfortable ride. But for one man, he used the public fascination in his disability to his advantage to make a living. But sadly, his story descended into a raw and tragic tale of Victorian exploitation, one which would end in an untimely death. Today on Macabre London, we'll be uncovering the tale of Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man. and welcome back to another episode of Macabre London. I'm Nikki Druce, your host with the silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy backstreets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want more episodes where we deep dive into some lesser known historic tales from London's past, then please don't forget to subscribe or follow so you never miss a new episode. If you aren't new here and you regularly enjoy the show and want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. There's loads of bonus content over there, including my monthly show, Gin and Ghost Stories, where I drink gin and tell ghost stories, and lots of other fun spooky bonus bits and bobs too. This month's tale is all about Victorian spiritualists, the ghost kind, not the gin kind. And if you love more Victorian style tales, you're gonna love it. I also have merch now, so if you want something cool like a hoodie, a t-shirt or a mug with a limited edition macabre design on it, then make sure you check out the shop. The link is in the description too, but be quick because things have been selling really fast and I don't want you to miss out. It's macabrelondon shopforthwall 
www.thepodcastpodcast.com. England in the late 19th century was undergoing a huge change. The Industrial Revolution was over, but the new way of life it ushered in was just getting started. Those who benefited from the enhancements in technology and machinery, which made production and industry much simpler and less labour-intensive, were thriving, but those who were exploited at the hands of it were barely surviving. Social and economic inequality was at an all-time high, and there was a rich-poor divide rapidly expanding in terms of living conditions, and things were growing quickly out of control. For many poor families in London, life was a constant struggle. They lived in cramped and squalid conditions, often with no access to clean water or basic sanitation. Disease was rife and infant mortality rates were high. Many children were forced to work long hours in dangerous conditions to help support their families. In 1847, a law was passed which stopped people, including children and adults, from working longer than 10-hour days, but official punishable restrictions against child labour were only brought in over 80 years later in 1933, when it was eventually decided that children under the age of 14 shouldn't have full-time jobs. Slums were still a part of London life, and the threats they held were terrifying. During this period, some of the worst murders London has ever seen occurred, with the most notable being the infamous serial killer Jack the Ripper, whose crimes at the time were yet another slum problem. The Ripper took advantage of the poor conditions people were living in to carry out their murders, preying upon women who had no other option but to be out after dark in the dangerous streets so they could make ends meet. At the same time, London was also experiencing significant cultural and artistic growth. The city was home to many famous writers, artists and intellectuals, including Charles Dickens, William Morris and Oscar Wilde. The city's theatres, galleries and museums were popular destinations for the wealthy and the educated, and London was widely regarded as one of the most cultured cities in the world. Despite this, London society was still deeply divided, and the wealthy and the poor rarely mixed. The upper classes looked down on the working classes, and poverty was seen as a personal failing rather than a social problem of the capital's own making. Many rich people believed that the poor were responsible for their own situation, and that they should simply work harder to improve their lives. Sounds familiar. And modern Victorian living was far removed from those that toiled to improve the lives of those in the upper echelons of society, making the world a cruel place to live if you were under the breadline. Outside of London, in Leicester, a thriving industrial city about 100 miles away from the capital, things were fairly similar in terms of the negative impacts the Industrial Revolution had had on the poor. With a population of around 100,000 people, the city's economy was primarily driven by its booming textile industry, which included the manufacture of hosiery, woolens and cotton goods, including several shoe factories and a thriving leather market. Despite its economic and cultural success as a result of its textile industry, much like London, Leicester was not without its social challenges in the late 19th century. However, the population were better at complaining about their poor working and living conditions in the East Midlands than they were in London, and they didn't go quietly when it came to standing up for their rights, 
carrying out labour disputes and protests for better working conditions, which did somewhat improve things. Overall, however, Leicester was a dynamic and growing city, with a rich history and a bright future ahead of it, so for one couple, it was a sensible place to raise a family. Mary and Joseph Merrick, both working-class labourers, were married in 1861 and soon moved into 50 Lee Street in Leicester as their marital home. Soon after, on the 5th of August 1862, Mary gave birth to her first child, who she would name after her husband Joseph, and also give him the middle name Carey after William Carey, who was a social reformer and a Baptist minister. Baby Joseph was a bouncing baby boy and his mother loved him very much and it wasn't until four years later that Mary had baby number two at age 29. Mary Jane had two further children, William who was born in January 1866 and Marion who was born in September 1867. Sadly, William passed away at the age of four after he contracted scarlet fever and his family had to bury him on Christmas Day. Marion, the youngest of the three children, was born with physical disabilities and in later life would develop myelitis, a spine inflammation, which would affect her movement and eventually sadly lead to her passing away at just 23 years old. Just after their second child was born, Joseph Jr. began to show signs of changes to his skin. Before this, at 21 months, he'd developed a minor bump under the skin on his head and a slight swelling to his lips, but at the age of five, his appearance began to significantly change. His skin began to loosen on one side of his body, and the texture began to change. The colour of his skin also became paler and ashy, with he himself later writing that it resembled that of an elephant. It was obvious to Joseph's mother Mary that there was something different about her son, and so she began to seek a meaning behind what was happening to her little boy. At a time when medicine was still operating on the basis of women being able to pass on trauma to their unborn child, Mary recalled to a doctor that she had encountered an elephant at a travelling menagerie and she'd been frightened by it, believing Joseph had undergone something known as maternal impression. She was convinced, and more than likely reassured by a quack doctor, that her son's condition was as a result of her encounter with the elephant, and she made sure to let Joseph know as soon as he was old enough to understand. This theory, while scientifically unsound, was widely believed at the time and upheld by Joseph for his entire life as the cause of his disability. This pseudoscientific belief would later provide Joseph with his stage name, the Elephant Man. As Joseph was growing, his body was becoming different. His right side was enlarged, his right hand was around three times the size of his left, his feet were growing exponentially, and his head began to become much larger than other children of his age. Particularly, the left side of his skull began to protrude, and the extra weight on this side of his body caused him to walk unevenly. With an unbalanced body and the energy of a young child, It was only a matter of time until Joseph suffered an injury and he fell, breaking a hip. This break became infected and caused him further mobility problems, meaning he was permanently disabled from the injury, giving him a different gait when he walked. Despite these challenges, which would have been incredibly hard to navigate as a young child growing up in such a testing period of history, Joseph did well at school. 
he learnt to read and write, enjoying books, and at home he was well loved. However, all that was to change when suddenly his mother developed a chest infection and died soon after. 11-year-old Joseph's world fell apart and he found himself alone with just his father to care for him. Joseph Sr., perhaps not coping with his wife's sudden death, became resentful of Joseph Jr., and he began to neglect the boy and became abusive toward him. Unfortunately, things didn't improve when Joseph's father remarried just over a year later. The pair moved in with Joseph Sr.'s new girlfriend, Emma Antill, who was also a widow, and her two children, and things began to rapidly go downhill for young Joseph. He would later write that he wasn't allowed to eat often at home and opted to not go home for lunch from school over fears of being taunted. When he did return home to eat, he was often told that the meagre rations he managed to scrounge were more than he deserved. By the age of 13, Joseph had tried to run away from home twice due to the neglect and abuse he was experiencing, but both his attempts failed and he was found by his father and brought back to the family home. With his father realising it was probably best for both parties if Joseph could leave, he got him a job at a cigar factory hand-rolling cigars. But Joseph's disability was progressing, resulting in his right hand being unable to be dexterous enough for the work. Joseph left the cigar factory and his father obtained him a hawker's licence so he could become a door-to-door salesman. However, this didn't go to plan either, and due to the nature of his health condition now making him look very different and affecting his speech, people were often frightened of him. As people were scared of Joseph when they opened his doors, he was often shooed away from homes for frightening people. But back in the Victorian times, it was deemed perfectly acceptable to react in this way to a person with a disability. On one particularly tough day when Joseph had made no sales and then was followed around town by people gawping at him whilst he tried to work, he returned home to his unsympathetic father, who then severely beat him for making no money. Understandably, enough was enough for young Joseph, and so he decided to pack his bags and leave. Joseph didn't have anywhere to go to, so he lived on the streets of Leicester, which would have been a very difficult and scary thing for a young boy to do. Luckily for Joseph, his uncle Charles, who was kinder than his brother, took Joseph in and looked after him. The boy continued to work as a door-to-door salesman, but he had little success, and when he was 17, due to complaints from people about his appearance, his hawker's licence was revoked. Now with no income coming in and unable to land a job, Charles couldn't afford to support Joseph any longer as he had his own younger children to care for and so he had no other option than to ask Joseph to go to the workhouse. Joseph tried to obtain work on a few separate occasions and due to his condition becoming worse, it was becoming difficult for him to be able to carry out physical labour. As the majority of jobs were physical in nature back in the Victorian times, it was difficult for Joseph to get a job, and so he ended up living at the workhouse for four years. Two years into his stay, Joseph was finding that a few of the growths around his mouth were becoming obtrusive and beginning to occlude his lips, making it difficult to eat. In order to help him, he was operated on at the workhouse infirmary, and the surgery worked. 
He was able to eat better afterwards, and his speech became better again, giving Joseph a much-needed boost of confidence. To the doctor who operated on Joseph, this would have been a significant achievement in his career. It's thought nowadays that Joseph had Proteus syndrome, an incredibly rare condition which only affects one in a million people. The condition is so rare that only a few hundred people have ever been reported as having had it, and it's still incurable. Joseph, acknowledging his health condition, knew that as he couldn't work, he'd have to find an alternative way of making money, and so from the confines of the workhouse, he wrote to a local Leicestershire showman named Sam Tor, who was well known in the area for his comedy and variety shows. Joseph pitched the idea of him joining Tor's troupe, and he agreed on the proviso that he was well enough to travel, as that would be the only way to keep the novelty factor going. With everything agreed and a new stage name of The Elephant Man agreed, Tor took Joseph around the Midlands on a mini-tour to try things out. Advertised as half-man, half-elephant, the crowds came to see Joseph on stage and this pay-to-gawk show actually paid off. With the trial tour a success, Tor took Joseph to London and he was instantly a hit. However, his hopes were soon dashed when he discovered that life in London was just as difficult, if not more so, than it had been in Leicester. In London, Merrick was thrown centre stage into the world of the freak show. Previously, as he'd been part of a variety act, things were different, but now this was just a show all about people with disabilities or who were physically different in one way or another, and that must have been a change of pace for him. However, it's easy to look at the history of the freak shows with a modern bias, as we wouldn't dream of doing anything like that nowadays. But back then, it was a way to earn money if you didn't fit in. Freak shows had been around since the 16th century, but they didn't become widespread until the 19th century. The shows typically featured people with unusual physical features or medical conditions, and they attracted huge crowds. They featured individuals with rare health conditions such as conjoined twins, bearded ladies and albinos. These shows were often presented under the guise of scientific exhibitions, with the performers being studied and displayed as medical anomalies. However, in hindsight, it's easy to see nowadays that they were a form of exploitation that reduced people to objects of curiosity and amusement to be poked and prodded. Merrick's role in the freak show was controversial. On one hand, it provided him with a means of financial support and a degree of independence that he had not experienced before. On the other hand, it subjected him to ridicule and exploitation, and perpetuated the idea that people with disabilities were inferior and abnormal. Despite the negative aspects of his involvement in the freak show, Merrick himself seems to have been relatively content with his situation. He enjoyed the attention and adulation that he received from the public and was able to develop a sense of camaraderie with his fellow performers as they held a deep understanding with each other. But the popularity of freak shows began to decline in the early 20th century as attitudes towards disability and difference began to shift. The medical profession began to challenge the notion that people with disabilities were freaks or monsters, and the rise of the eugenics movement led to a greater emphasis on genetic normalcy. Additionally, as society became more industrialised and urbanised, traditional forms of entertainment such as the travelling show began to lose their appeal. 
Before interest dwindled in the freak show, however, Joseph took advantage of his situation as now having been very popular on the circuit to negotiate himself a new manager. One of Joseph's colleagues from his former travelling show spoke to an acquaintance of his named Tom Norman, a man who had a penny gaff in Whitechapel in the East End. Penny gaffs, as they were known, were cheap entertainment for the working classes and they would display quick and easy entertainment which could be performed anywhere, regardless of the setting. Tom didn't even meet Joseph before he agreed to let him live in his shop and to be a permanent exhibition as he came highly recommended from his former colleagues and so the switch was quick and Joseph settled into the shop in Whitechapel. The shop is still there today, selling a mix of saris, bed linen and household goods. But you'd never tell it once had anything to do with such a troubled past, and it's definitely missing the blue plaque it deserves. Joseph was a success at the shop. People came in droves to visit and gawp at him. He had a bed at the back of the shop with a curtain that secluded him from view when he wanted to retreat to privacy. Over time, Joseph tried to get people to learn more about him. He made informational postcards, pamphlets and photographs, and people would come and buy them, which actually did help to give him a reasonable income. However, even though Joseph was making the best of things, his condition was deteriorating and his growths on his skull were becoming painful, making it difficult for him to rest. One morning, Tom, his manager, arrived at the shop and Joseph was still sleeping. He saw him sat up, hugging his knees and his head resting upon them to offer him support. Tom asked Joseph if he was comfortable like that and he said he had to sleep that way to avoid a broken neck as his head was too heavy to sleep any other way. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. In 1884, Joseph was discovered by a London surgeon named Frederick Trevers, who took an interest in his case after being told about Joseph by a colleague and he offered to help him. He visited Joseph in the Penny Gaff and in a later book he wrote about their first meeting, saying Joseph was the most disgusting specimen of humanity I had ever seen. At no time had I met with such a degraded or perverted version of a human being as this lone figure displayed. 
After being invited by Trevor's to be examined at the London hospital just across the road from Tom's shop, Joseph accepted the invitation and travelled there. By this time, Joseph, when he did have to go out in public, wore a cape, walked with a cane and wore a specially designed hat with a cloth front which covered his face. During the examination, Trevers said the following about Joseph. Firstly, that he thought he was an imbecile, but he soon realised that actually he was an eloquent and educated man, proving his prejudices wrong. Trevers measured Joseph's body and noted that his head circumference was 36 inches, his right wrist was 12 inches and one of his fingers was 5 inches in circumference. He also noted that some of the bumps on Joseph's skin were very large and some of them exuded an unpleasant smell from them. After a few different examinations at the hospital, Joseph became disillusioned with the way Trevor's was treating him and so he set a boundary with him saying he was no longer to be examined there. He said he was often paraded naked in front of medical students and he no longer wanted to feel like a medical oddity. His wishes were respected by Trevers, and as somewhat in way of an apology, he gifted him the photographs he'd taken during the examinations and Joseph used them to add photos to his pamphlet he was selling at the Penny Gaff, which made the pamphlet far more desirable to people. However, the ethics of the freak show and oddity displays were becoming increasingly scrutinised by the public and also the authorities. Penny gaffs were encouraging undesirable behaviour by gathering unsavoury types together, and this created a public nuisance. Pair this with the ethics of freak shows now becoming part of the moral conscience, and the popularity of the shop started to dwindle. Eventually, police shut down Tom Norman's shop and Joseph had no other option but to go back out on the road. As we know from my previous episode about Saatchi Barman, the Hottentot Venus, freak shows in Europe were popular for longer than they were in the UK and so the obvious choice was to head back out on the road. But even in Europe, the interest in sideshows was beginning to dwindle and the display of people as living curiosities was drawing to a close there as well. After a short tour abroad, Joseph and his new manager ran into authorities who condemned the show and things drew to an abrupt close in Brussels. Joseph's new manager deserted him and ran away with all his earnings from the tour and a portion of his savings. Luckily, he had enough to scrape together to get a boat back to England and made his way back to London. Once back in the East End, Joseph was now destitute and had no prospect of income on the horizon. He couldn't be admitted to a workhouse and he was once again homeless. After a few days, he was discovered by a policeman whilst he was being hounded by children and he helped him get to the station. As Joseph's speech was now quite bad and he couldn't be easily understood, he handed the policeman Trevor's card in the hope that he would contact him. Trevor's arrived at the station and saw what a sorry state Joseph was in. He took him back to the hospital for treatment for pneumonia, which he'd developed from being on the streets. Trevor's arranged for Joseph to live at the London hospital, where he could receive proper medical care and be protected from the public's curiosity. During his time at the hospital, Joseph became something of a celebrity, and many people came to visit him, including members of the royal family and many Victorian celebrities themselves. Despite the positive attention he received, Joseph's life at the hospital was not always easy. He was often lonely and isolated, and he struggled with his own sense of identity and self-worth. 
He also experienced significant physical pain and discomfort as a result of his condition. Despite these challenges, Joseph was known for his kindness, his intelligence and his sense of humour, and he was always very kind to those that visited him. He learned crafts and was a keen model maker. He began building dioramas out of card and recreating London's most prominent buildings in miniature, which can't have been easy given his hands by this point were considerably different in size, which must have made his dexterity difficult, but his creations were made with the utmost skill. Over time, Trevor's managed to work out a way to communicate with Joseph, and the pair would sit and talk for hours on end, becoming good friends. Trevor's made sure to make life as comfortable as possible for Joseph at the hospital, and despite the building not being a long-term stay facility, he made sure Joseph had a room of his own, and even had a bed built for him so he could sleep comfortably. Trevor's asked a colleague of his, Francis Carr Gom, the chairman of the hospital committee, for help in raising funds to help with Joseph's care, and so he dutifully wrote to the Times newspaper, who published his request for donations alongside a picture of Joseph, and this drew a lot of support from the philanthropic upper classes, and the response was overwhelming, with Joseph receiving a lot of gifts, kind letters and support, which is entirely unexpected. But things weren't always great for Joseph, though, as some nurses refused to work with him due to being frightened by his appearance, and when he was allowed to walk around in the hospital, he was requested to wear a face covering to stop him from frightening other patients. Even though things were dismal for the most part, there were smatterings of light during Joseph's time at the hospital. He would send gifts to visitors and a prominent Victorian actress, Madge Kendall, even arranged for someone to teach Joseph basket making. Once he'd mastered the craft, he sent her a hand-weaved basket as a thank you present. Joseph was introduced to a few women by Trevor's in the hope that they would become romantic partners, but he found that the whole situation was too emotional and he still held a lot of residual trauma from his mother's death, which meant whenever women were kind to him, he just became too overwhelmed with gratitude and couldn't cope. But after a few meetings with various women, his confidence grew and he was able to have a few letter-writing relationships with a few potential suitors, as this wasn't too much for him to cope with. However, he never married and his relationships focused on companionship, gaining many female friends who would converse with him regularly and he would send gifts to them. In the last few years of his life, Joseph enjoyed the occasional holiday to the countryside, facilitated by Trevor's, and now somewhat of a celebrity himself, he was welcomed into the places he visited, still with an element of curiosity, but albeit a bit more well-meaning than it once was. As time went by, Joseph's condition was now slowly becoming worse. His head was now incredibly heavy, and his sleeping was now very dangerous, as if he lost control of his head, his neck could easily break, and unfortunately, this would be what would eventually happen to poor Joseph. Joseph was sadly found dead in his room at the London Hospital on the 11th of April 1890. Trevor's initially believed that he had died of natural causes, but an autopsy revealed that his death was the result of a tragic accident. Joseph was just 27 years old. According to the autopsy report, Merrick had attempted to sleep lying down instead of propped up in his custom-made bed, which had been designed to support the weight of his head and neck. 
As a result, his head had fallen forward and caused his airway to become obstructed, leading to his death. But nowadays, it's believed that his neck may have also dislocated, which caused his head to slump forwards, blocking his airway. Merrick's death was a shock to those who had cared for him at the London hospital and to the public at large. He was given a dignified funeral at the hospital chapel. He was spared the dignity of being buried, and it's uncertain if he consented to his body being preserved or not. His skeleton was preserved and his soft tissues buried at the City of London Cemetery in an unmarked grave. To this day, his skeleton is kept preserved as an important study tool for medical students learning about Proteus syndrome, and the Merrick family descendants are consenting to his body being used in this way as his body isn't on public display. However, a replica of his skeleton, alongside some of his belongings, did used to be on display at the Royal London Hospital Museum, which has now closed, and I've not been able to work out if there is a display at St Bart's Museum. I think there might be, but I'm not certain, and I've not had a chance to visit the standard museum there. I've been to the pathology one, but not the normal one, so if you've been, let me know. Joseph Merrick's life was marked by extreme physical deformities, social ostracisation and exploitation. His story serves as a reminder of the dark history of disability and difference, and the ways in which society has perpetuated stigma and discrimination. Even up until relatively recently, before he died, Michael Jackson was said to have visited Merrick's skeleton a few times, and even asked if he could purchase it. This story, however, has been said to have been a rumour, and it's difficult to get to the bottom of what is actually true here, but I have it on good authority that he did at least visit the skeleton, but it's still not clear if he ever put in a serious offer. Jackson did, however, have an animated version of Joseph's skeleton dancing in his Leave Me Alone music video to highlight the similarities between him and Merrick's public fascination with the way they both looked. Today, Merrick's legacy lives on in numerous books, films and other cultural representations that have been inspired by his story. While these depictions vary in their accuracy and sensitivity, they all bear witness to the enduring fascination with the Elephant Man. Joseph Merrick's life was marked by extreme physical deformities, social ostracisation and exploitation. His story serves as a reminder of the dark history of disability and the ways in which society has perpetuated stigma and discrimination which are still continuing today. Even though Joseph's story seems like a million miles away from our current understanding of people living with disabilities, the discrimination and ableism that plagued Joseph's life is still rife, even unconsciously, in today's society. However, just by existing, Joseph did a lot to change society in several ways. He impacted medical ethics and highlighted the need for healthcare professionals to treat patients with dignity and respect, which led to guidelines being created for the protection of patients, making sure they weren't exploited for financial gain. And the same goes for disability rights being founded, using Joseph as an example. His story still permeates popular culture and serves as a poignant reminder to understand the humanity behind someone who was portrayed as different that they're not just being objectified as such and their sheer existence degraded in favour of their disability being front and centre. It is up to us as a society nowadays to ensure that we continue to honour his memory in a way that is respectful, compassionate and just, and to remember that even though he became famous for being different, he was ultimately the same as all of us. 
Yet, despite all of this, Merrick showed remarkable courage and resilience, facing his condition and the world with an unyielding spirit. Still to this day, he's a symbol of human endurance in the face of adversity, and his story continues to inspire people. While society has come a long way since Merrick's time, his story serves as a powerful reminder that we must always strive to be kinder, more compassionate and more accepting of everyone, regardless of how they look, identify or present themselves. As even though he was different on the outside, underneath it all, Joseph was exactly the same as each and every one of us. Thanks for joining me for this episode. There is a lot to Joseph's story and I couldn't fit everything into this episode. So if you'd like to find out more, please take a look at my sources in the description. As always, I'd love to know your thoughts on this one. So please leave me a comment and a thumbs up on YouTube or a rating on your podcast provider. If you're new around here and you've not yet subscribed, I'd love for you to join the Ghoul Gang. So what are you waiting for? Come and join us by hitting that subscribe button. Also, if you do like the show and you'd like to support what I make, then why not consider becoming a patron like these amazing top-tier legendary executive Patreon producers Amy, Christina, Christoph, Jess, Karen, Kate, Kevin, Mary, Rose, Sally, Sam, Sarah, Teresa, V and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. There's a few different ways you can support me, like individual one-off donation links and also my Amazon wishlist, so please check out the support me section in the show notes. All support is 100% integral for me being able to continue making this show and thanks from the bottom of my heart for even considering supporting me. You're the best. And don't forget to head to the merch link to get your hands on some of those exclusive designs I've been telling you about as they'll only be around for a short time. Merch is at macabrelondon-shop.fourthwall.com. Also, if you want a little cheeky discount, then sign up to Patreon and you'll also get all of that extra bonus content too. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, and I'll see you ghouls next time. Yeah.